We're in a series called uh, The Way of the Wilderness, and it's uh, kind of tied in with Lenten, the Lenten season, because um, many times in our life we go through seasons where there is kind of a dryness. Um, oftentimes we feel like maybe we're alone, we're traveling, and we don't know uh, through life, and we're, we're going through life, and we don't really know uh, where we're going, where we're going to end up, the kind, of, uh, kind of lost in a way. And uh, we're kind of paralleling that with the story of the children of Israel and Moses uh, in the book of Exodus when they left Egypt and they headed to the promised land. And today we arrive at the story that you kind of saw there on the screen. Maybe one of the well, most well-known scenes in the life of Moses and the people of God. The passage is found in Exodus chapter 32. I'm just going to read a portion of it, and then we're going to talk about it. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron, that was Moses' brother, and said to him, Come, make gods for us. Who shall go before us? Because this man Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Some people think that tells the teenagers it's okay to pierce your ears, okay? I guess, I don't know. But, so all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he took the gold from them, formed it into a mold, cast an image of a calf, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation, saying, Tomorrow shall be a festival for the Lord. They arose early the next day and offered burnt sacrifices. They brought other sacrifices and offerings of well-being, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and then rose up to revel. Kind of what we're going to do at the picnic, okay, today. When the people saw that Moses had delayed coming down the mountain, the Bible says in Exodus that it had been some 40 days and 40 nights since Moses had left the people and gone up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And Moses being gone 40 days and 40 nights, you can imagine, it had created kind of a frightened uh, impatience in the people of God. Kind of think about it, if a leader leaves an organization for 40 days, what would it be like? And so you have to look now at what's behind this whole idol worship deal, because as you see, the people had had some hard times before. Remember, they left Egypt. They went across the desert. They crossed the Red Sea. They faced, of course, Pharaoh's army was chasing them. They, at one point, run out of water and food, and they complained to God, and God provided. But this is the first time, the first instance, where we see that they actually turn their attention toward worshiping another god. Their faith had begun to wane so much, and God's presence seemed to be withdrawn from them to the point that they actually became attached to something else. I want to ask you, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you're kind of in that dry, stale season with God? It feels like no matter how hard you try, you just don't sense that God is close. Have you ever been tempted to turn to something else other than God? Well, if you have, and I have, we are guilty of what Scripture calls the sin of idolatry. When times of stress or fear or boredom or crisis come and God seems far away, we often turn to things. And the question is, what do you turn to? Because we all have golden calves. Some of us have herds of golden calves. <laughs> 
Some may have just one or two. But as Christians, we know, we know in the back of our minds we're not supposed to have a golden calf. So what we do in our day is we kind of uh, paint them and hide them and put them in the garage. And then when somebody comes into our life and they say, hey, isn't that an idol? We say, oh, no, that's not a cow. That's a dog. <laughs> that's a pet. And the truth is, it really is an idol. You see, God's people had an issue they had replaced God with something else. So let's do this this morning. Let's kind of agree up front that instead of being kind of sensitive about this, let's just all be open-minded to the fact that maybe, maybe all of us, whether we realize it or not, we just have to pause and consider that maybe we do have a tendency to place something before God. I'm going to walk through four things that can kind of help us identify whether or not something has become an idol in our life. In other words, what, what makes something an idol? Because here's what it is about idolatry, okay? All idolatry is is taking something legitimate, something that by itself might even be good or positive, but it becomes illegitimate when it turns into an idol. A, a, a legitimate thing kind of becomes an illegitimate thing when it becomes an idol. So what makes it an idol? I'm going to give you four things. If you want to jot these down, great. They'll be important as we talk about some things in a moment. The first thing is an idol often reflects the culture that you live in. See, the image of the golden calf was not removed very far from the children of Israel from their life in Egypt. They turned their attention immediately when they assumed that Moses was gone, therefore God is gone, they turned their attention to something that they were very familiar with in their culture back in Egypt. In our day, the same thing happens. You don't have to look very far. You can see it. People say, when, when does something become an idol? How can I know if something is an idol in my life? Well, ask yourself the question, what is it that non-Christ followers turn their attention to? What is it that people in our culture tend to worship? And when you find that, usually you can find out what you tend to worship. And here's what we do as Christians. We're really professionals at this. We can obscure it enough, and we can make it small enough, and we can make it seem like it's just them that have the idol issue, when the truth is, it also is what we gravitate toward. So first thing is, look in the things of culture and say, what is it that culture tends to elevate to an idol? It's the same thing we do. Second thing, something becomes an idol when there is a repetitive nature to it. We find that when stress or crisis or boredom creeps in, we're driven back to this thing over and over and over again. In verse 4 through 6, chapter 32, the Israelites did that around the calf. They molded it. They built an altar to it. They ran a festival around it. They sacrificed to it. It was something that they did over and over and over again. Think about the stories in the Old Testament. How many times the children of Israel repeatedly went back to idols? Repeatedly returned to the idols that they knew from false gods of other religions and other groups of people. So here's the deal. It's an addictive thing. We live in this addiction or a day of addiction. I read recently about a lady. This was amazing to me. She was talking about how she actually was addicted to recovery programs. She was in 12 recovery programs in one year. 
What we're saying is it just becomes an idol. There's a repetitive nature to it. Third thing, this one seems kind of obvious, but it's important. An idol obscures and competes with who God is in our life. Exodus chapter 32 says, God's voice of punishment on the people was that they were quick to turn aside from me and quick to worship another God. Over the New Testament, the way Jesus put it, he said, do not store up for yourself treasures on this earth, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he goes on to talk about this whole thing where the picture of the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be unhealthy. But if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. So an idol will compete for the attention and the affection that is rightfully God's. How can I tell? I worship it. I give it attention. I give it time. I give it money. I build an altar to it. And I sacrifice the very best of who I am to that thing. Remember in the Old Testament sacrificial system? The people were to bring the very best they had. Pure, as perfect as they could get. When I turn my attention to an idol, someone other than God, I give it the very best of who I am. And by doing so, it obscures my relationship with the Father. Last thing. What makes something an idol? Is when it moves from that area in our lives of just being something else to being the something and if you do that, it usually will be surrounded by rationalizations and excuses. Now, follow me here. This is probably the most comical part of this story. Exodus says that Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my uh, Lord burn hot. You know the people, they are bent on evil. They said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we don't even know what has become of him. Now listen to this. So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and poof, out came this calf. <laughs> That's what he says. It's ludicrous. Now, we laugh at it, but that's the way it works with idols. We have rationalizations and excuses. Now, here's how I know. When you came in today, if you had a bulletin, you probably saw on the front of the bulletin the title of the message today, right? We put it out there every week. Idols in the Wilderness. Now, a few of you, I know really perceptive ones, okay, which is a lot of you, you thought, oh, we're going to talk about idols today. Hmm. And you started thinking in your mind, because this is the way the mind works. I wonder if I have any idols. And you start running through the list in your mind. And one popped in your mind. And when it popped in your mind, your mind said to you, no, that's probably not that bad. Right? That one is not because of this, this, and this, and this. Listen, I promise you, that one that popped in your mind is probably it. <laughs> because here's what we do. We, we wrap it in this cocoon of excuses. It kind of keeps us safe, and it keeps us warm, and it keeps us feeling like, okay, it's not that bad. Compared to so-and-so, it's not that bad. Now, these are the four things I want you to keep in mind. It reflects culture, it's repetitive, it obscures and competes with God, and it's surrounded by rationalizations and excuses. Because now we're going to talk about at least five 
of our modern day calves, our modern day golden calves. Now again, there could be many more than this, but I'm just going to kind of, you know, whittle it down to what I consider to be some of the top five in our culture today. And as we go through this, I'd like you to be really honest with yourself and see if you relate to any of them. Now, if you go five for five, we're going to have special prayer for you right over here on the side after church, okay? <laughs> probably you won't hit all five of them, hopefully, but it probably you might hit at least one of them, okay? I want you to be thinking about that before we get to the end. The first one I want to talk about is here uh, on your left and my right, the open briefcase of money. The way I would word this is this is the idol of materialism. It is so prevalent, the accumulation of stuff. If you have your wallet or your purse or whatever it is, however you carry your money on a clip or whatever, I want you, if you will, to pull out uh, a dollar, five dollars, even ten or twenty dollar bill if you have one, okay? If it was a really good week, you could pull out a hundred, okay? I want you to pull one out. If you need to, loan somebody a dollar. Now, don't worry, we're not going to give it to the parking lot. <laughs> you can hold on to it. Right. Here's the first thing I want you to know about this item. It is not a prerequisite for you to be poor or wealthy in order to be caught up with this item. This has nothing to do with being wealthy or poor. There are a lot of people who struggle financially who are materialistic, and there's a lot of people who have quite a bit of resources that are not materialistic. It is, however, about finding a level of security and wrapping and insulating ourselves within those things that leads to materialism. Now, everybody have your bill in your hand, okay? Here's the deal. What you hold in your hands right now, friends, is by and large the primary God of the 21st century. This is it. You and I live in a culture that worships that little greenback. And every day of our lives, you think about this, we are bombarded, bombarded with the need to buy more stuff. Catalogs, junk mail, TV, radios, now our cell phones, billboards, it is the slowest and most insidious seduction there is. I want you to look at the back of that bill. Turn it over to the back. And about the middle, middle of it, kind of toward the top middle, there are four words printed there on your bill. What are they? In God we trust. Now, I've thought about that this week. Why in the world do you think it is that our founding fathers and mothers, our government, thought that it might be a good idea to print on our money that four-word phrase. You ever thought about it? In God we trust. I'll tell you why I think they did it, at least partly. I think they did it because it is with that bill in your hand that you are most tempted not to trust God. Every time you spend one of those bills, it would be awesome to let your mind and your eyes drop to that four-word phrase and say, God, I still trust you. John White is a Christian writer. He's also a physician. 
He writes about this materialism idol. He says, we are no longer God's creatures accepting and distributing the goodness that he pours on us, but we have become the feverish and slavish worshipers of abundance itself. We need the newest model. We need the trendiest stuff, whether it applies to clothes or furniture or vacations or toys. We are devoted to things that are perishable. Look what it says in Psalms. Now, this is not in Exodus. This is actually in Psalms 106. He's reflecting, the psalmist is reflecting back on the story of the children of Israel. And this is what he says. They made a calf at Mount Horeb, and they worshiped a calf image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. <laughs> he said they took, they took God and they exchanged it for a big old fat calf that eats grass. And what I think, what I think Jesus would say to us today is, listen, it's crazy to exchange the glory of the Father for cars that rust and houses that don't satisfy and wealth that you cannot take with you when you die. Here's a way I would describe it. You ever heard the story about the monkey with its fist in the cage and the banana in the cage? You've heard that story, right? And the monkey is almost driven crazy because he can't figure out how to have the banana and freedom at the same time. Because if he puts his hand in the cage and grasps the banana, he can't get his hand out of the cage. But if he pulls his hand out of the cage without the banana, what does he have? No banana. And it literally almost drives him crazy because he can't figure out how to have both. We have to decide, friends, which is it that we want? Do we want freedom or do we want the banana? Now, here's the deal. Most people know when they're crossing the line into this idol. It's not very subtle. You can usually figure it out. The next one we're going to talk about, the second one, the trophy, is a little more subtle. The way I would word this one is this is the calf of winning. A guy named Charlie Sheen made this phrase very popular. I think he was pretty high when he did it. But he made it pretty popular a few years ago. Winning. Some people will use the word competition. That's fine. And here, it's not about materialism so much anymore because people who kind of worship at the foot of the golden calf of winning have very little time to enjoy what they've accumulated. It's really about the next victory, the next win, the next conquering in their life. Let me tell you about something that troubled me. I was trying to come up with this week some funny illustrations from my own life about this. And I found myself lacking any fun illustrations. Because every time I could think of something, like I was going to talk about like Bill Gates or Donald Trump or Richard Branson, how they all had to conquer new territory and they're never satisfied and they've always got to have more and winning and winning and winning. Every time I was thinking about them, all I knew was we were going to go, well, I'm not Richard Branson. <laughs> I'm not Bill Gates. All we were going to say was, well, that's not me. I was going to do cute illustrations about like when I was growing up as a teenager and I was going to tell stories about winning in sports and how I couldn't stand to lose. Couldn't stand it. I developed such an unhealthy habit about winning as a kid to the point that, listen, 
my, my teamwork, athleticism, everything in my life was overshadowed by the need to win every single game. I don't have a lot of funny stories, although if you catch my mom and dad in the lobby, they probably could tell you some. Every story I could tell would let me off the hook. But then I became an adult. <laughs> and it didn't stop on the baseball field or a football field. It translated over into business, into relationships. Listen, even into the body of Christ. I still, to this day, fight the need to compete. I still fight the need to make someone else maybe look smaller or less effective or not quite as smart as I am. About six months ago, I was at a meeting with some other pastors. And let me tell you, if there's ever one meeting you don't ever want to go to in your life, it's with a group of pastors, okay? I mean, I'm just being honest. I don't even know how we had a room big enough for all the egos in this room. It's always about, how many is in your church now? How's it going, Doc? That's what they say. That's what they mean when they say, how's it going, Doc? They don't care how you're doing. They care how your church is doing. Listen, if I'm not careful, everybody can get consumed by that. We start measuring, and you have a barometer, and you have a certain, you know, a certain gauge. I can exaggerate to make Oasis look bigger or better or more spiritual than some other church. It just happens. Listen, this drive to be first, this drive to be the biggest and the best, if we're not careful, it can become an idol in our lives. C.S. Lewis warned, he said, the God of materialism that we just talked about, he says it causes us to want a lot and the danger, he said, about the God of competition is that you want more. In order to have more, listen, other people have to have less. Lawrence Shames wrote a book called The Hunger for More. He says as a result of his surveys and studies and writings that the bottom line is that more is never enough and that the win is never enough and that there's only two scores in the winning and the success game. Here they are, win or lose. That's it. And what happens is in the winning, the competition game, he says it's just people moving from one pile to another. And the pile just keeps getting bigger. And no one ever stops to ask, when is enough enough? Listen, we can see this very clearly in the celebrity culture of our day. But we don't even have to look that far. We just have to look at our own lives. So here's my question. Is your life still about people, especially people who don't know God? Or is it about just winning? Is it about just the competition? That's the second one. Third one, and you got to hold on to your seat now because now it's going to get good. The third one is the mirror. And this one represents the idol of self. One author has noted that our culture is often re reflected by the names that we choose for our magazines. He points out that over 50 years ago, the predominant magazine in America was named Life. It encompassed everything, birds, trees, animals, people. It wasn't just certain parts of culture, it was all of life. 
Then we moved into an era where the major magazine in our culture was people. So we just kind of pushed aside life and we just decided we're just going to focus on people. Then a little magazine came along several years ago and it was called Us. So no longer about all people, everybody. Now it's just about me and you. And then somewhere along the way, a new magazine came out that hit the newsstands and just blew it away. It's called Self. Now it's no longer about life. Now it's no longer just about people. Now it's not just about me and you. Now we have finally made it to self. Isn't that remarkable? Here's what it is. It's always about me. It can look like the God of comfort or leisure seeking. It can look like my career where I live for retirement or I live for TV or I live for recreation or I surround and I insulate myself with substances that will alter my mood. It's about me. The God of self can take on even the form of outward appearance preoccupation. Our song becomes mirror, mirror on the wall. Our altar becomes a closet or a gymnasium. It's remarkable the extremes that we will go to now. We are so concerned about wrinkles and bags and sags and gray hair and wardrobe and muscle tone. Just flip on a remote, just turn on a remote. Did you know that last year, $20 billion was spent on cosmetics alone? $2 billion was spent on healthcare products. Little of it by me. $74 billion was spent on diet foods. $74 billion. Each year, $1.5 billion is spent by beauty companies just on advertising. Did you hear what I said? $1.5 billion. 7.4 million Americans will undergo cosmetic surgery this year. And I'm not making a judgment about any of that thing. If you've done that, great, whatever. All I'm saying is that in our culture, we have increasingly moved towards self. Listen, if you don't believe me, find me the last time somebody posted an ussy on Facebook. <laughs> we actually made selfie a word in the dictionary. Now here's the crazy part of this. All of this comes down to one thing, and that is we just want to be accepted. We just want to be enough. We have this unhealthy focus on ourselves because we really just want what we want, and that is just admire me and respect me and know that I am significant. I'm going to tell you the best way to feel good about yourself. Really feel good. Become the person God intended you to be. And Neil Anderson says this. He says this in one of his books. He says, most people spend a lifetime trying to become what they already are. If you knew what God thought about you and said about you and how he felt about you, if you believe that every day of your life, I promise you the focus wouldn't necessarily need to be on yourself. Here's a quote from Henry Nguyen. Anytime I struggle with this, and I struggle with it, friends, let me tell you something. When you get in your 50s, you struggle with this. When you get into your 40s, you struggle with this. When you get into your 30s, you struggle with this, okay? 
Your 20s, you, we don't like you people anymore. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You look different, you're shaped different. You know? Anytime I struggle with this, I try to remember this quote from Henry Newman. He says, even though you may not be chosen by the world, you have been chosen by God. Every time you listen to his voice, you will discover within yourself a desire to hear that voice longer and more deeply. It is like discovering a well in the desert. And if I could just say, because we're in this series, it's like discovering a well in the wilderness. So there's the third one, self. The fourth one, as you can see, is people. And I would just say it this way. Sometimes we kind of worship at the altar of relationships. For example, there's another person in your life. Maybe they're real. Maybe they're imagined. <laughs> but you give an inordinate amount of your time and your thought and your energy because the truth is, the truth is, even in the greatest relationships, you still should hunger deeply for God. Listen, you can do this married. You can do this if you're single. Listen, within a marriage, if your marriage is in trouble or whether your marriage is good, you can still fantasize about the ideal mate. If I only had this different person, if, this, if there was just two or three things different, like this person over here, you can be in a good marriage, listen, and it can consume your time around a fantasy person that doesn't even exist. You can allow your time to be consumed with inappropriate thoughts and images about the opposite sex. I thought C.S. Lewis described this perfectly. I love this. He says this. He says, he says, you know, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act. That is, to watch a girl undress on a stage. But suppose you went to a country where you could fill a theater simply by bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so that everyone could see just before the lights went out that it contained a lamb chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that something had gone seriously wrong in that country and that their appetite <laughs> for food had somehow been skewed? If you, if, you don't, if you don't like that, I mean, I don't know. That's just brilliant. Listen, if you're single, you can be tempted to put your relationship or put your trust in a relationship. You know, God, if you just give me that person, I would, I would, just, I would just adore them and I would spend so much time with them and I would, I would, I would just want to be with them all the time. I would never leave their side. You know, it's possible. You can have an idol. It doesn't even have to be a real person. But be very careful about relationships, unhealthy, real or imagined. Last one, and I'm going to tell you, you better hold on to your hat for this one. Sometimes, and I want to be very clear how I say this one this morning, but some of us have built an altar to the God of religion. In their books, Toxic Faith, Steve Atterburn and Jack Felton talk about this whole thing of toxic faith it's the kind of addictive behavior that we can have when we begin to worship religion or tradition or certain methods of worship and not God. 
We develop a devotion to a false god and our lives begin to focus on the religion or a particular component of religious activity and not on God. Now, think back to the Bible and remember the group of people that Jesus had this accusation for. They were called the Pharisees, right? Their idol was religious rules. That's what they worshipped. It didn't matter that people were hurting. It didn't matter that people were lost and away from God. It didn't matter about that because they worshipped their religion. Their need to be affirmed and accepted for what they knew and for keeping the rules was more important. Now this can play out in a ton of different ways. Very careful how I say this, but I want to say this to you this morning. It is possible to worship that book more than you worship God. It is possible to worship worship and music more than you worship our God. It is possible, possible, to worship all the, the elements of worship, all the modes of worship, than it is to worship the real God. And I'll tell you how I know. I know because there was a period in my life where I did it. I could go through the motions. I could get people up to sing and, and respond. And I could move uh, crowds. And all it took was enough charisma. And all it took was the right words. And all it took was this appearance of something. And I'm telling you, that's what I worshiped. The antidote, let's talk about it. This happens when we want everyone to fall into a certain mode of worship and our style of doing church and our way of doing things. It happens when we place the emphasis on the doing, not the being. It happens when we think the security and stability of our relationship is based on us instead of God. So this morning I would ask you to back up and ask yourself, am I really worshiping Christianity Am I really worshiping something or am I worshiping God? Now, let's go through them again. You've got materialism, winning, self, people, and religion. Do you find yourself this morning being drawn? Do you relate? Do you, do you, do you identify with any one of these? Now, maybe you don't. But here's how we're going to end today. I want you to think about one of these five, if you relate to them at all. When Moses comes down from the mountain, he actually burns the calf, he grinds it into powder, and he scatters it in the water, and he makes the Israelites drink it. And the reason he makes them drink it, I think he was saying to them, listen, if you think this satisfies, if you think this fills your hunger, try it. <laughs> try it. If you think this takes the place of God, give it a whirl. So this morning, what I would say is we're not going to grind anything down, okay? <laughs> and we're not going to eat it. But what I would like you to consider is what maybe you should do. Can you this morning identify and dethrone and re-enthrone God to the pedestal? I love the psalmist's words. When he reflects on this story in the wilderness, he says they worship the golden calf. Listen, because, here it is, 
they forgot God. I mean, that's really what happens. These things get enthroned in our lives just because we forget God. We get scared that God's not there. We get scared that he's gone and he's not coming back. Moses left. He's gone. Where's this man, Moses? <laughs> they didn't know that he was up on the mountain getting a covenant <laughs> that was going to connect God to these people for eternity. So here's what we're going to do. When we come here every week, one of the things we get to do is we get to remember and refocus on God. We get to remember and refocus on God as a community. We can stop each other and say, let me encourage you. Don't underestimate God. He still loves you. Don't forget God's presence is still in your life. We get to do that for one another. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to try to to do that for each other. I've asked some folks to come and to help us with this. And what they're going to do is they're going to address individually each one of these idols. And if you can relate to one of them, they're going to ask you to stand at that particular moment and respond as a group to some words that are on the screen. Now listen, if it doesn't apply, that's cool. But if it is your idol, if this is something that you feel like the Holy Spirit is kind of tugging at your heart with, then I'm going to ask you to stand with them and say, God, I don't want to forget you. Let's worship here. If you relate to the idol of materialism, please stand with me. Lord, forgive us for our greed. Help us to make the resources you've given us a means to show our love and not be the object of it. Give us spirits of gratitude, charity, and love so that by this, everyone will know we are your disciples. We will not forget you, God. If you relate to the idol of winning, please stand with me. Merciful God, please forgive us for the sin of prideful comparison. Let us resist the temptation to see life through the lenses of success and failure. Teach us to rejoice with one another in times of victory and mourn with one another in times of loss. We will not forget you, God. to the idol of self. Please stand with me. Father, forgive us for our vanity and selfishness. We have found our value in our outward appearance. Help us to look beyond ourselves to the world you have given us and to which we have been given. Teach us to pour ourselves out for others the way Christ poured himself out for all. We will not forget you, God. Thank you.
you relate to the idol of relationships, please stand with me. Jesus, forgive us for allowing our relationships with others to take the place of our relationship with you. Show us that we are not defined by who we know or how they see us. Rather, we are defined by the image of our creator that we each bear and reflect. We will not forget you, God. If you relate to the idol of religion, please stand with me. Father, we repent, for we have made an idol of our own orthodoxy. We have chosen certainty over trust. We have chosen knowing about you over knowing you. Help us to rise above our religiosity and embrace faith as the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We will not forget you, God.